Welcome to ASRS's Journal of Vitreoretinal Diseases Authors Forum. I'm your host, Dr. Timothy Murray, Editor-in-Chief of JVRD. On each episode of the JVRD Authors Forum, I will interview innovative retinal researchers on their studies featured only in JVRD and how these studies will impact our patients' care in our clinics. Tune in to hear directly from investigators about the clinical implications of the newest and highest quality research in the field of retina. Hello, and welcome to the JVRD Authors Forum podcast. On this episode, we'll be discussing cutting-edge research on diabetic macular edema treatment patterns with a world's expert. This research was recently featured in the May-June 2023 issue of JVRD. For this, I am joined by my friend and fellow retina specialist, Dr. Paul Hahn of New Jersey Retina. Dr. Hahn is a senior author on the article entitled Evolving Treatment Patterns in Diabetic Macular Edema Between 2015 and 2020. Welcome, Paul. Thanks, Tim. So, Paul, can you tell me a little bit about your research team, what the thought was for the study, and then we'll work our way through the the data and, and the interpretation? Sure. So just like all research, there's always a backstory behind how these things get developed. And, you know, this uh, project was actually a spinoff off of a separate uh, project. So the initial parent project was a larger project uh, from the ASRS uh, Health Economics Committee, of which I was part of. Uh, And as part of this project, we looked to uh, model the value of treatment of diabetic macular edema at a broader societal level. In order to do this, we needed to know how patients with diabetic macular edema are treated. And as we would do, we looked to the literature to try to find out how uh, patients in the real world are treated with different treatment patterns. And surprisingly, we couldn't find that information in the literature, at least for uh, current years. So rather than making up guesses and calling them assumptions in the model, uh, we decided to actually figure it out based on our, our own research. So the research team consisted of myself and Jeff Emerson, both from the ASRS Health Economics Committee. Uh, we recruited the experts from the Vestrum database to explore real-world data. And we had the help from uh, two fellows, uh, Gunit Sodi and Zishan Hawk, the first two authors on the paper, who were really instrumental in pushing this forward. So, Paul, the, the Vestrum data um, set is relatively unique. Can you tell us how that differs, for example, from something like the IRIS registry? You know, they're all um, registries of data from EMR systems. Uh, the IRIS registry is uh, a registry of, of all, of many ophthalmologists, whereas the Vestrum data set is a data set primarily of retina specialists. So this is a aggregated longitudinal data set of multiple retinal practices, diverse retina practices across the country. And it was perfect for our needs in order to better understand how retina specialists treat DME. I also think your comment that there wasn't existing good data is kind of um, surprising in in the world we live in today. How, How did you see that lack of data at the time? You know, there's a lot of research on a lot of different things, and uh, we expected to be able to just look up somewhere where, you know, how often are patients using anti-VEGF monotherapy or how often are patients being treated with laser these days? And, you know, again, very surprising. So, you know, I think it shows that a lot of our research is directed towards 
certain things and not directed towards other things. Um, you know, things, you know, imaging characteristics of diabetic macular edema or, you know, uh, post-hoc analyses of clinical trials. Those are all exciting uh, and perhaps high impact studies, um, but more basic things like how we actually treat patients may not, uh, may not be. And it was surprising to me to see that. It does seem that there's been a wealth of what people are looking at as real world studies nowadays, trying to take what's been done in a research setting and extrapolate it to what really takes place in your and my clinic. And I think you and I both feel that's a critical imperative for us to understand how we use the research. Absolutely. You know, we know very well from similar types of lines of research that real-world outcomes do not mirror those of clinical trial outcomes. And, you know, obviously in the, in the real world, we don't get the same outcomes and we don't treat the same way that we do in clinical trials. And it's very important for us to understand why that is. And this type of real-world data set is one of the steps towards figuring that out. So like always, we come into these studies, I think, with some um, preconceived notions, which we call hypotheses. What did you find looking at that five-year window? That's such a critical window in the treatment of our patients with diabetic macular edema. You know, I think one thing that was perhaps gratifying was to see that what we found ex was similar to what we might expect. So over the years, I think we as a field have come to understand that anti-VEGF therapy really lies at the heart of our treatment for diabetic macular edema. And we've seen over a five-year period uh, the 2015 to 2020 period, uh, that there has been increasing use of anti-VEGF monotherapy consistent with that thought. So uh, in 2015, about 40% of patients were treated with anti-VEGF monotherapy. And by 2020, about 60% of patients in that database were treated with anti-VEGF monotherapy. Uh, along the same lines, we've learned that focal laser um, perhaps may be used more selectively in patients with diabetic macular edema, um, and similarly, we've seen that in 2015, I think about 9% of patients were treated with focal laser, and that decreased to about 3% with focal laser monotherapy. Now, plenty of patients are still being treated with combination therapy during that time period, but what was gratifying was to see that the treatment paradigms that we as a field have adopted in the real world seem to mirror what we think are best practices. Yeah, it is interesting that, that that seems to be a continuing evolution. There's many people now at our major meeting and others that are really suggesting that anti-VEGF monotherapy really should be the primary approach and that supplemental treatments, which would be the local focal lasers, may be secondary. Do you, do you feel that if we looked at this data again five years from now, that that would be something you expect? You know, that's very interesting. You know, I think right now we are at a very, uh, I don't know, turning point time in our treatment paradigms for diabetic macular edema. We have anti-VEGF agents currently, but there's a lot of research towards trying to figure out what the next big thing is. And I suspect that within the next five years, our treatment paradigms are going to significantly change. One of the, you know, we have gene therapy options or sustained delivery options that might decrease our need for repeated injections and how we treat these patients, whether it's ongoing anti-VEGF uh, as first-line agents or whether it's one of these longer-acting delivery systems with supplemental laser as an adjunct or supplemental um, steroids as an adjunct. You know, all these things, I think, have yet to be defined. And again, I think to plug the paper, 
Uh, you need to know what you're doing now to know how you're going to do or how things have changed or how things have evolved in the future. I also think your comment about the patients in our clinic differ from those that are included or excluded from clinical trials. That's so critical. Could you mention a few of the parameters in your office that are very different from what we often see in a randomized clinical trial? You know, randomized clinical trials will only include patients who are going to be good trial patients. And whether that's self-selecting or whether it's due to the clinical trial criteria, uh, you know, either way, the patients in a clinical trial are going to be more compliant. Um, they're going to have less uh, medical comorbidities. There are going to be patients that you expect are going to be able to come, that the, that the principal investigator is going to expect will be able to make it to those trial visits. And in the real world, we treat anyone who needs treatment. So that's, those, those include patients that, um, that may not be as compliant or may have other systemic comorbidities that don't allow them to come in or you know, have job-related issues that prevent them from being treated on a regular basis. And, you know, as a, as a physician, we're going to do our best for those patients. Uh, but those are patients, some of those patients that may not be as good patients for clinical trials. And a lot of that probably reflects the discrepancy between clinical trial uh, outcomes and real-world outcomes, although there's probably a lot more to it than just that. I think we're spoiled in clinical trials, you know, where our patients actually are compliant, they're medically focused, their hemoglobin A1Cs are better, they're taking better care of themselves from an exercise and diet perspective. And you're right, in the real world, we see patients that would never have been included in a clinical trial, but that doesn't dissuade us from, from the importance of treating them. And that's why this data to me is really so critical. Yeah, and I agree. You know, I think it's important for us to know how clinical trial patients can do in terms of outcomes, but I think it's also, and it's also important for us to try to maximize our outcomes in the real world. But I also think it's important for us not to look at our real world outcomes and think that we're not doing the best for our patients. I and mean, I think we clearly are. Um, and I think a lot of those discrepancies that we just discussed can account for some of those challenges. And you've alluded to some of the exciting future for this sustained release, you know, by by polic, you know, molecular structures for treatments, um, gene therapy. I, I think it's amazing that we do so well with our patients now compared to what our patients did when we when I started. You're too young to remember that, but um, it's it's interesting. So tell me a little bit in your in your future. Where do you where do you think the next five years goes as as a closing point? Well, I think the, the immediate uh, part of the next five years lies with getting intravitreal therapeutic agents, which are better than the agents that we've had for the past 10 years. And, you know, now we have uh, the first dual antibody mechanism system, uh, which has been very effective for treating patients with diabetic macular edema. We have a high dose uh, flibercept system, which... Um, uh, we hope will be similarly efficacious in treating patients with diabetic macular edema. But we're also exploring things like uh, surgical implants for sustained release or gene therapy, as, I, as we briefly touched on, uh, which might mean a single injection and perhaps no more injections in the future. And, you know, I think from a, from a patient standpoint, from an outcome standpoint, and from a, from a health standpoint, I think all that's very exciting. I really think your research has nailed those trends and, and seen an evolution in that focus. And I think what we want to make sure is our patients know that, you know, we are there for them. Um, and my biggest thing with our patients still is, you know, if you have diabetes, get to your retin specialist, 
if there's any change in functional vision. And even sometimes I worry that there's not a change. And the earlier we get our patients in these trials or in our office, clearly the better that they seem to be able to do over a decade. I agree. You know, I think we can talk all about these therapeutics and they've clearly pushed our field forward. But one of the biggest unmet needs is not our inability to treat patients, but our inability to get patients who need treatment into the office and to get them the appropriate care. So, you know, that type of access to care is, is critical. Absolutely. So Dr. Paul Hahn, thanks for taking a moment to join us. It's always wonderful to be able to talk with you, Paul. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to the JVRD Authors Forum. You can watch and listen to more episodes on the ASRS YouTube channel and on popular podcast directories, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Visit www.asrs.org forward slash JVRD forum on the ASRS website to learn more. See you soon.